Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 17, The New North Star, August 7th, Day 3. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Teen paralyzed in ocean is what the headlines read in the New Jersey newspaper article that was left for me on the counter in Archer's hospital room. I was intrigued. Remember that nurse I was telling you about who intercepted me in the hallway and told me earlier that there were news reports about Archer? Well, I guess she broke hospital protocol, whatever it was, because there on the counter by my sign-in notebooks were two newspaper articles. The headline of the other read, Shore Break Causes Life-Threatening Injury. I scanned and began reading about the danger of the New Jersey shore breaks at the beach and for tourists. Sure enough, they were both about Archer. One referred to him as an unnamed young man taken to Atlantic Care. Another, called Archer by name, the vacationing swimmer, Archer Sempt. They all had an angle. They weren't really about Archer. I mean, they were, but they weren't. In the one about the dangers of the shore break, there was a quote from someone named Harry Back. Harry Back. Where had I heard that name before? That article that named Archer also reported, quote, the family is unavailable for comment and has requested not to be contacted, end quote. What? Now I knew what the nurse was talking about and I was stunned. I wanted to be contacted. The article was not accurate. Archer was not body surfing. He did not injure himself on the break. He hit a sandbar, and he was not a random tourist swimmer. He had grown up at the Cape May shore every summer of his life. But that name, Harry Back, lingered with me for a moment. Who was that? You know, five years later from the date of Archer's accident, when I began looking for the people behind the scenes to interview for this podcast, I found Harry back and he granted me an interview. When he walked through the door for the interview, he sort of looked familiar to me. It was Harry who reminded me who he was. He was Archer's junior lifeguard instructor. Wow. Junior Lifeguards is the summer program in Cape May sponsored by the Beach Patrol that attracts young, athletic, and ocean-oriented girls and boys to start young, being trained, mentored, and groomed to be part of the well-known Cape 
May Beach Patrol, and they became adults. They're fast runners, fast swimmers, think fast on their feet, and they work out a lot. It's not a stretch to say the Cape May Beach Patrol is famous as beach patrols go on the East Coast. Their seasoned, muscular, tough lifeguards are highly trained to save lives. I remembered Harry. My boys, including Archer, were part of the Junior Lifeguards program for years. I had a flash of memory of a particular summer they were in the Nationals, that is, the National Lifeguard Championship competition, which was hosted in Cape May. Dewey and Archer were on teams that placed in water rescue. Hmm. Harry Back. It's sort of a name you can't forget, right? Yes, it all came flooding back to me. And Harry Back himself is fairly famous in those there parts, as they say, as the Beach Patrol itself, training many a guard for a couple or more decades. Wow, my heart swelled and I felt a stinging in my eyes when I saw him and remembered. I honestly wanted to give him a hug for the sake of the old days, a really good summer, a really good memory, one that is now ever so precious. I can see Archer now running down the beach in his red lifeguard shorts, the wind whipping his blonde hair back from his suntanned little face and his legs spinning so fast they look like a wind wheel kicking up sand as he turned it on, headed to the finish line. It's funny, you know, about memories, especially the sweet ones, the simple ones, how they may just be one of our last of someone you love a lot. Here is an excerpt of my interview with Harry Back. You knew Archer? Yep. Yeah. At the beach club? Well, yeah, junior, from junior lifeguards. Yeah. Right. Do you have a memory of him in junior lifeguards? Uh, I remember they were, they were, all your kids were really funny. Like they, they, they always had a smile on their face. They were, they were always quick to just kind of jump right in. They were never shy. Um, and it helps when there's a bunch of other little kids there and they're all running around like crazy. Um, but that's what I loved about it. And, and they were eager. They, they, they actually, I think that program just, um, there's nothing serious about it. Even though we're teaching serious things and they're learning, we always made it fun. Always. And I think that went a long way. But very few kids come in with a grumpy look on their face. You know, usually they're all hyped up and ready to go. But I do remember that about them. It's, it's, it's always, always eager, eager mm. and ready. Mm. Yeah, they were, they were good. Sweet. Thank you. I marveled how our life's paths seemed to keep crisscrossing as Harry sat across from me. Maybe you have a life that keeps crisscrossing with some folks too. Well, I was really struck that it was Harry, Harry Back, who had taught Archer and knew Archer as a child. And not only as a child, but 
the well-known Harry Back taught Archer how to rescue others. And then being the main guy who handled Archer's rescue was just so amazing to me. And I learned for the first time from Harry that Archer's rescue was unusual in a number of ways for him. The first, because it was a rescue of a local, not a tourist, someone who knew the water well. And it was the rescue of someone he knew. While that is what Harry remembered so vividly, what I was struck by was the uncanny good fortune that it was Harry Back, the head instructor of the beach patrol for over 20 years since retired, who just happened to be sitting in the clubhouse at the beach club at 3.45 p.m. on August 5th. And uh, so just over time, it just, you know, I said, oh, it's, it's, it was the first time with Archer that you actually knew a name with the person and a face and somebody you knew mm. on a day-to-day -day basis. So that was, that was different, but that's three years removed from my last day on the beach patrol. And it was like second nature to me. It just, everything just came back. Everything came back. Thank you, God. I don't think it was a coincidence Harry was there. I don't. I learned that it was Harry who ran down the beach and took over the rescue after James Schmucker courageously made the water rescue, swimming Archer's paralyzed, floating body out of the ocean onto the sandy shore. Where were you? What, I mean, what was happening? How'd you get the news? I was in the clubhouse and the lifeguards called up that they, had, they didn't even say who it was. They just said they had an unresponsive person. So I grabbed the AED, I grabbed Genzel, I said, come with me. And we run down to the beach. And as I get there, the lifeguards from Poverty Beach are already there, one of them. And his name is Tommy Hershenrider. And he's holding manual stabilization. So immediately I felt better because I taught that I taught Tommy how to do what he's doing. And he's a super calm, level-headed, doesn't overreact. He's got the he's got um, immobilization, the cervical immobilization, which is the key person. You need somebody really good in that position. Who's hold who's holding the head to make sure it doesn't move sure anywhere doesn't else. Move anywhere else, which is key. And as I get down, I do a, uh, a quick assessment. I know the other lieutenants, EMTs are on their way. And as I get down, I see that it's Archer. And uh, obviously the, the guards that were there for the beach club, James and Dom, they were pretty freaked out. And Davis. And Davis was pretty weak. So we let them go to the side and I did a quick assessment of Archer uh, eyes open and looked him right in the eyes. He couldn't respond. Um, I gave him, as I described, probably the hardest sternal rub I've ever given anybody else in my life. What does that mean? You just take your knuckle if you're trying to get some kind of response and you just rub here. It's on the, the chest. Yeah, right on the sternum. Um, 
to see if you get any kind of eye blink, verbal, twitch anywhere. I see. That's why it's hard. Yeah. Because it would hurt. Yeah. You're trying to see if they have any feeling anywhere. And ask them to grab both of his hands. And asked, what happened when you did that? Nothing. We didn't, he, there was no response. Um, he just blinked his eyes. And that was the answer that really the only answer I needed to know that this was, this was a bad one. This was serious. And then it all just, it, it just, that's where it went. That was it. I mean, we, we got him on the backboard. We got him packaged up rescue squad into the ambulance and to the helicopter. And As Harry told me this in the interview, I remember my mind swirling, wondering what it must have been like for Archer. And so I asked Harry. Do you remember anything else about Archer? The, the, the fear, the fear in his eyes. I always look at, think of myself as a person who can read people's eyes as well as I read their mannerisms and kind of see what's going on in their head. And uh, I can just see it. it's scared. It's scary. I can't even imagine what that is like to be that scared. I can't either. And uh, looking at him and, and he knows. He knows. He knew yeah. how bad it was. Yeah. And I, that's what I remember the most is, is in my mind knowing that this was a very, very serious injury. Just from the blink of his eye. Just from the blink of his eyes. Harry saw the look. I had seen it too, all day. It was a look you pray you never see on anyone in real life. But this was someone, my son, and it was real life. Although there was a part of me that felt it was sort of dreamlike, like not real. I glanced at my big kids, Paula and Pete, still sitting bedside to Archer and still very quiet and very attentively and seriously watching him. Archer, who is still not moving. We were all watching for any sign of movement. Maybe he was just sleeping or maybe knocked out. I wasn't sure which. I went out into the hallway to the donut hole to find a nurse and ask whom I could contact in the hospital who manages communications with newspapers. It was strange to me because the nursing staff knew right off the bat the answer to my inquiry and told me it was someone named Jennifer Tornetta at Atlanticare. I was surprised they knew that kind of thing. I asked them, if they had a telephone number for her. They looked at each other in consultation and then told me to call the general hospital number and ask for communications. I guess my bewilderment must have been very apparent on my face. I asked if they could give me a specific number. As I told them the last time they told me to call the general hospital number, when I was asking if there was a parking pass for overnight parking in the Caesars garage, I was on hold 
for over 45 minutes before I ever got a human being. And I still hadn't seen the application they said they would drop off at our room. As I told them this, another nurse, a different nurse, who had been staring straight ahead at her computer punching on the keyboard, got up from her chair and came back from around her computer in the donut hole out into the hallway and kindly told me she'd write the number down for me as she walked with me back to Archer's room. As she wrote the phone number down in my notebook, she told me it was Ms. Tornetta's direct number. I thought that was very kind of her. It was still calm in Archer's room, just the usual hospital beeps and buzzers and and so I walked around the corner to the family waiting room to make the call. Hello, this is Louise Fipsemft. May I please speak with Jennifer Trinetta? As I waited, I began writing down my thoughts in my journal, the newspapers, the headlines, what the reporter said that was inaccurate. Ms. Tornetta, this is Louise Fipsemft. I'm here in Atlanticare, trauma room 3117. I was told I could call you about communications. My son is Archer Semft, one of your patients. He's 17. I am his mother. I began to tell her I was looking at the newspaper articles and how one said that I had, quote, no comment and didn't wish to be contacted, end quote. She quickly told me it was their standard hospital policy to tell that to the press. I said, but that is for us to decide. And she said, it's to protect the patients and families so they're not bothered. Wow. Okay. I told her I could understand that. But what I objected to is that no one told us about the news reports or about any reporter calling to speak with us. And no one in the hospital asked us or consulted with us. She said again, it's just standard hospital policy. I could tell she may have heard me, but she didn't really hear me. Do you know what I mean? I bet that's happened to you before too, maybe, huh? On occasion. So I said, Ma'am, it wasn't your decision to make. And one of the articles was also incorrect about our son. I could have straightened that out if you had just told me a reporter called. Her tone indicated to me that she was surprised that I would want to have that interaction. And she again told me, Mrs. Semft, it's standard hospital policy. I was a little rattled. It wasn't standard for me. We ended our call. I remember sitting there, sort of stunned and kind of numb. It was just another thing, but I was bothered. I realized at a very nondescript, couldn't quite put it into words kind of way, that Archer's injury 
had implications. I called Billy to seek his opinion. Billy and I both feel strongly about full and informed decision-making and about being clear about information. For us, that usually means engaging in dialogue. I was very willing to engage in dialogue, but with the head of communications, I felt like she was preventing me from engaging, and that made me angry. I didn't even know where she was in the building. I tore out one of my personal notebook pages and wrote out, to whom it may concern, regarding Archer Sempt, room 3117. Please notify any reporters or members of the press who call the hospital that the family of Archer Sempt is available for comment and can be reached directly at this number. And I wrote my cell phone number down. I folded the paper in half and addressed it like an envelope. And I wrote my name, our room, and my phone number on the outside upper left corner. I walked out back to the donut hole to the first station where there was a nurse and handed my paper to her with a request that it be delivered. I imagine Miss Tornetta's job was to protect the hospital. But how did that policy do that? All I could think of is that there were a lot of famous people who came to Atlantic City to perform and be entertained. Maybe, maybe it was to protect them. I don't know. And maybe it really was to protect the patients. Okay, I get that. And she probably does a good job of it. We were in Atlantic City. And it was a little wild and woolly, as measured by what Archer's friends reported to me when they were outside waiting. But standard hospital policy? What is that? That policy was something they had no right to make a decision about on our behalf. It was our life, right? It wasn't their right to do that. They should have asked me. And I may have said, okay, yeah, tell the reporter we don't want to be bothered. Or I may not. It made me angrier the more I thought about it. I walked back into Archer's hospital room as he continued to not move. But as I looked closer, he didn't look like he was resting at all. He did not look peaceful. Do you know what I mean? You know what I mean, like the difference when you see your child fast asleep versus checking on your child when they've been sick with a bad cough and they're finally asleep, but they're really just conked out with that look of exhaustion on their little faces. I studied Archer and it didn't even look like that either. I wondered, did they drug my son? Is that also standard hospital policy? I was so on guard in this place. As I watched Archer closely, something in my body felt not right. It had been a few hours now, 
No one told me what they gave him. No one even allowed me to look at the doctor's orders. I wasn't sure I could trust this hospital. What else was standard hospital policy? And who is protecting whom here? I don't like the suspiciousness I felt, and I realized I was trembling. I don't know why, but I was. I needed to trust this place, I told myself. But I didn't understand this place. I didn't know if this place was safe for Archer. Are all hospitals like this? Or is it just intensive care units? My whole body was sort of shaking. As I look back, I've learned that this trembling was a cue my body was giving me to pay attention and not dismiss. But I did dismiss it. I was puzzled, and I just thought I needed a drink of water. Have you ever been in an ICU and wondered what the heck they are doing to your loved one or giving your loved one or putting in a drip bag? It really is unsettling. I realize it might not be bothersome to many, but it was to me. The way I saw it, you can't get or give clear information if you're drugged. And I wanted communication with my son, however hard that might be. I needed to know how it was for him. I really was scared Archer was knocked out rather than sleeping. I took in a deep breath. I needed to settle down a little. And I had a realization. What I really feared was that if he were drugged up, he might not ever open his eyes and come back. I remember reading about the use of narcotics, or maybe it was anesthesia for elderly people at surgery and how they might not come out because they're so vulnerable, whatever it was. But I felt in my bones that my son lying there, being told he was paralyzed, I wouldn't have the use of his arms or hands or legs. He was very vulnerable. And I felt, I felt that life and death line was real. I knew it was because my body shuddered again. And I felt my anger rising up again too. If they did drug him, how dare they? This hospital scene was really foreign to me. In my mediator world, I'd call it a violation of self-determination. It certainly was disempowering. And I felt it in every fiber of my being. Aware of how steamed up I was, I went back to my little metal chair I found in one of those other rooms and put in the corner. And I tried to take in some deep breaths. I have learned to rely on my breath to settle me down. And if I'm lucky, to allow me to clear and even get some insight. 
but the room was still so loud with all the hospital sounds. As I took in some air, I didn't even close my eyes. I stared at my family. Archer remained very still. I wish I could tell you he was labored in his breathing. He was not. It was more like he was hardly breathing. My daughter Paula really looked gray and see-through. My son Pete looked lost. I felt the same. I closed my eyes and took in a few more long breaths. Oh, please, Lord, help my family. Please give me wisdom and strength. When I opened my eyes, I had a thought to go see if I could get a picture of the last set of x-rays they took of Archer's lungs. I had seen them, but I hadn't really seen them. You want to know why? Each time the techs wheeled in the x-ray machine, they made us leave the room. I mean, I suppose because of the radiation. So we stand on the other side of the curtain down the hallway. But the last time, right after Archer's incident, when they wheeled in the machine to take the x-rays, and we stepped back into the hallway and then back into Archer's room to see the x-ray they had just taken, the x-ray technician turned off the machine. I asked him if he could turn it back on for me. He didn't respond and just started to wheel the machine out. And that chapped me. I asked again, sir, hang on. Can you please turn the screen back on so I can see the x-ray too? He sort of looked at me, but put his head back down and kept wheeling the big heavy cart. Come on, you just took the x-ray. I saw it, I said. And he said, I don't think I'm supposed to. And I said, why not? It's just an on-off button that turns the image back on. It's on your screen. I saw it there. And he said, I'm not allowed. I said, what do you mean you're not allowed? I just want to see it and take a picture of it as I held up my phone. It's my son. It's our x-ray. He continued wheeling the machine out. And I said, are you really not going to let me see my son's x-ray? He was pleasant enough, but I could tell this exchange was making him very uncomfortable. And he said, sorry, but I can't. It's hospital policy. Hospital policy? To not see our own medical records? What is wrong with this place? I turned toward Paula, looking for confirmation, and said, I just want to see Archer's x-rays. They are his x-rays, right? But she just stared ahead. Oh, my God. I was worried about her. Another doctor came in and brought me more papers to sign. He said he was an anesthesiologist for Archer's surgery. You know, I signed 
And as I did, I thought about it, but I thought more about it later. I never sign boilerplate forms. I always take the time to read them. I'd learned that as a mediator. Oh, there's so much garbage people throw into boilerplate contract provisions. Strangely, I just signed it like I was a robot or something when he handed them to me. A nurse came to tell me my husband had arrived and I had to walk down the hallway to let Billy in and to really show the staff that we were trading places as they were starting to hammer down on us for only two in the room. That standard hospital policy bugged me too. How is a person to not be separated from important people in their lives and have continuity of care while in a hospital? It seemed stuff happened when I was not in the room, but everything was happening so quickly. I walked into the family waiting room. I realized I was seeing the same people again and again in the trauma unit the same family members, at least in glimpses, as they too were in and out of rooms or the family waiting room. But I missed seeing the Hispanic family, although they had always been in such distress. Even in the less than 48 hours we had been there, it felt like a sort of heavy Dingy grayness was setting in on not just Paula, but even the other family members I had seen last night and the night before. They were shuffling and even stumbling in and out of the family waiting room. And there was also a disheveled quality about just about everybody there. Oh, there were characters, and I reminded myself we were in Atlantic City, one of the gambling casino capitals of America. And it was summertime, convention time, party time. The folks in the trauma unit at Atlantic Care? Well, the few times I walked down our side of the hallway and glanced in the rooms, they were all in bad shape. That's another thing about the Atlantic Care Trauma ICU. ICU. It was like a fishbowl with those half-drawn curtains. Anyone could see into any room unless the curtain was drawn completely. And it rarely was because the nurses were in and out with such frequency. Every once in a while, the pulsing sounds of the monitors in the other rooms would be punctuated by a piercing and eerie alarm of and it made my heart race and all hell would break loose. I'd already heard it half a dozen times, it seemed, in just a couple days. And every time it had the same effect on me. I was beginning to understand what that one fast, harsh, and ugly sound might signal. I think it was the alarm of imminent death. I wasn't positive, but I think so. I prayed I'd never hear that for Archer. I thought again of the Hispanic family and how so quickly they had experienced death. 
I wondered, was one of those fierce alarms I heard last night the last signal for their loved one? I had also overheard in the family waiting room earlier today that another patient didn't make it. I wanted us out of this place. I looked down at my phone and Davis Barsby had texted me a video. Oh, it was a little sideways and sort of upside down, but it was, it was a group of people in a prayer circle at the beach, at the beach club yesterday morning. It amazed me. A prayer circle at the beach club? I watched it a few times. The beach club is close to our hearts. My mother and father-in-law were members and served on the board and were part of a group that did a lot of environmental watchdogging. But a prayer circle? It really moved me. It was another one of those little epiphanies, you know? Maybe more people prayed than I realized. They just didn't talk about it. Five years later, I learned that it was Maybeth Hudson, an attorney in Baltimore and a member of the Beach Club at the time of Archer's accident, who called that prayer circle. I did not know her. She granted me an interview. Here is an excerpt. I needed to do something. For the members of the club. Yeah, it was really like anybody who was there texted me at 30, 1130, and we stood kind of where he had been, said, I'm just going to offer a prayer right now. There were people that I didn't know. There were people that just showed up for that and left the beach. There were, you had like so many people. It was crazy. This made me smile. How about that? Prayer. It's universal, you know? It's so available. And it really can unite us. Gosh, I am so grateful for all those beach club members and all those strangers who just showed up to say a prayer together in a circle. It struck me the power of togetherness. Yeah, it was really like anybody who was there that day. So Dory, I think, was in that like circle. Lisa Costello. Um, I don't even know. Davis came in. He was crying. I said, anybody who wants to pray on the beach, I said, I'm happy to do it. And, you know, like, I don't really lead prayers at the beach club. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> the beach club is not exactly the place no. where we'd be leading a no. prayer or even talking about God. <laughs> I, um, I just texted everybody. I said, listen, just pass the word. If you want to meet on the beach and pray, it was sometime in the morning. And there were people that I didn't even know in that circle. And we stood in the circle, kind of where he had been, where he had been the day before. So down close to where he had been on the beach. Yeah. And I just, I offered a prayer and I just said, listen, we're going to um, pray however you're comfortable, you know, because I'm also aware that like everybody has their own style. So I said, I'm just going to offer a prayer right now for 
Archer, for his family, for all the people who were with him and the guards that were with it. Cause oh my God, like we prayed for James and Davis and all those guys that were right there. And uh, we prayed for your family. And then I just said, let's have, we'll just pray silently here for a few moments and I'll close this with an amen. And it was, you know, it was like 10 minutes that we were staying there and Davis updated us, which was helpful. Oh, everybody, you know, we were just so grateful. There were people that I didn't, I mean, as I said, there were people that I didn't know. There were people that showed up that just showed up for that and left the beach. Yeah. Wow. It's really very beautiful. You know, the band of people that were praying for him, for you, for his medical team. I mean, it is a remarkable, and I, I mean, you did such a beautiful job of documenting it for us as well. I remember watching that video over and over like it was a cool glass of water on a hot day. It really lifted me up. I lifted my head and remembered where I was, but I made some notes about it in my journal. And I also noticed someone had dropped off some packages for us that had been mailed to room 3117. Wow, people are so kind. Archer remained sleeping, and Paul and Pete looked grim, but remained attentive. So I ventured out again, this time to look for somebody who could help me get a photo of Archer's x-rays. I guess I was gone a while, getting nowhere. Why is it so hard to get information around here? They are our records. Archer is my son. He's 17. He's a minor. I'm his mother. Why can't I get a copy? I was told again, I could go to the patient records office. I implored that nurse. Why do I have to go to a different floor and make a records request and wait until it's approved a hundred years from now when I want to see the film today? And I know it is in your computer right there as I pointed to her monitor. I told her, I need to understand. I need to know if we're making progress with the inflation of his lungs. She said, all she could tell me was to go and fill out a form. She totally did not hear me. I don't even think she saw me really. It was all disturbing to me. Couldn't she see that I just wanted to understand about my son? I really don't understand why they make it so hard. As I walked away, I asked her if she knew when Dr. Radcliffe would be arriving. There was another nurse sitting next to her at the next station. They looked at each other and didn't seem to know who Dr. Radcliffe was. I told them he was my son's neck surgeon who had promised me he'd come back for another family meeting today. And I wondered if they knew when that might be. They looked at each other again with blank faces and one said, a family meeting? Yes, I said. I asked him for a family meeting. I guess it'd be fair to say family meetings were not standard hospital policy. I walked back towards Archer's room. As I passed the other rooms, I swear I could hear some of the patients calling out for help. 
It was agonizing to me. I would look in and I could see there was no one with them. They were left alone. I felt another shiver go down my spine. I felt so bad for any patient left alone in that intensive care unit. Would you ever leave your loved one in a trauma unit? I hope not for one minute. They need you. I vowed again to myself, I would never leave Archer alone. I went back to the nurse's station to report what I had heard and to ask them if they'd go and respond. It was getting late afternoon. I thought to myself about this strange intensive care hospital scene and all the standard hospital policies or the way that staff would use that phrase when they didn't want to tell me something or give me something. It just didn't make sense to me. I'm used that if they wanted to create a good standard hospital policy, it would be to do all they could to support and encourage families to make sure there is someone bedside 24-7 for every patient in the trauma intensive care unit. Machines can't hear the cries of those in distress. As I continued walking down the hallway, I thought another good standard hospital policy would be for family meetings. What do you think about that? I walked into Archer's room. He was awake, or at least his eyes were open as he stared. The nurses were in there getting ready to suction him again. And as they began, it was painful to watch. But I swear, I saw Archer's arm move ever so slightly as they suctioned his lungs. Like he jerked a little. I saw it. I know I did. I said to the nurse, did you see that? I saw a movement in Archer's left arm. The nurse responded, it was just a spasm. I thought Paula was going to pass out. Just a spasm? In that one moment, those thoughtless words seemed to rip our last little thread of hope like a spider web, you know? That's what came to mind in that moment. And later that day, I wrote it in my journal. You know what I mean. If you look closely at a spider web, how the threads are really delicate, but also really strong, and they glisten in their perfection. Each one is like a little miracle. And you just have to look at them in the right light to see them sparkle. You know what I mean if you've ever looked closely. But to that nurse, I guess it was just another day of spring cleaning. And in one short sentence, she swept away our one thread of hope. It's like she had no awareness whatsoever of our experience watching our athletic, artistic, tall, active son and brother 
paralyzed and struggling for his life. I glared at her. I was tired of standard hospital policies. I noticed how I was holding my breath. My hope was going to be something she could never sweep away. In that galvanizing moment, I felt like I saw the North Star right over Archer's bed. And I said directly to Archer, Archer, I saw your hand move, sweetheart. It did. And you know what that nurse said to me? It's just your imagination. Life can change in the blink of an eye. You know, I realize now how much of our catastrophic injury experience was in many ways made worse by the medical experience. And so much of that was shaped by hospital policies and ICU policies, policies that applied to patients and policies that govern staff. Yes, some of those policies added to our suffering. Oh, how complicated and overwhelming and even defeating the intensive care unit can be for everyone, really. Patients, families, visitors, and also staff. Trying to save lives and also having people die on you? I really think intensive care unit staff is numb to a certain degree. I mean, it's understandable. It might even be an intelligent response for them to protect themselves. But it sure does come at great cost for them. And for us, the patients. I want to talk with you about hospital policies because most of us, you and I, or our family members, will be in a hospital at some time in the future for some purpose. You might be listening now from a hospital. I pray your experience is not in the intensive care unit, and I pray you will not have to spend the night or longer than one or two nights, but you may. And you will confront hospital policies. As an attorney mediator, I've been hired by medical institutions over the years, including the internationally well-known Johns Hopkins Medical Institution. But I never spent time on a hospital floor where the patients received direct care. My work was with the chief medical officers, medical department chairs, and administrative nursing executives. And I learned a number of things, and one that really surprised me. And it was this. No matter how stellar their medicine was and their level of medical sophistication for very complicated procedures that saved people's lives, the patient satisfaction scores 
remained low almost across the board. It's true. It's public knowledge. And it's not just Johns Hopkins. It's numerous hospitals. It really blew my mind. They could develop a state-of-the-art medical procedure, but they couldn't crack the code on quality patient experience. Well, I will share with you my thoughts about a quality patient experience and see how they stack up to your thoughts. My hospital experience with Archer was illuminating in more ways than you can even imagine. And I have talked with numerous spinal cord injured families and others about their hospital experiences since that time. Here is what I have come to believe. The starting point for hospitals and for all hospital policy decision makers is to walk in the shoes of the patient, to understand the patient and the patient's family's experience, to be able to enter into their experience to feel their experience. What is that experience? Well, most people enter hospitals fearful, uncertain, and unknowing. And this goes for trauma units, intensive care units, and general hospitals. And it goes for all peoples no matter what their color or their age or their ethnic background or their gender or their education. And in that fearful state, people hope to be restored to at least how they were before, whatever it was that brought them to the hospital. And some people arrive traumatized. What they desire is to be restored too, even in life and death situations. But what we, the patients and families, yearn for in that fear and unknowing is peace of mind, ease, understanding, something to be hopeful about, connectedness, something caring and positive. Regardless of why we or our loved ones are in the hospital, hospitals are scary places for most people. Hospital staff need to remember that. What patients and their families need are hospitals to be places we feel safe in. We want to trust hospitals. And yes, quality medicine is certainly a critically important piece of that experience. We expect knowledgeable and credentialed people to work on us. And yes, patient safety is certainly a critically important piece of that experience too. We don't want anyone to harm us with a bad procedure, but that is not all. And by themselves, 
quality medicine and patient safety are not enough. There is something much more fundamental that patients and their families want and need in their hospital experience. Something that will calm the racing mind and the pounding heart. And it doesn't cost anything, really. I mean, it's crazy because it seems hidden, and yet it is in plain sight. What do you think the patient and their loved ones yearn for in their hospital experience? What would you yearn for? When and if you were in the hospital, when the stakes were high, what is it that you remember more than anything else in your hospital experience? Think about that. If you do have a memory, a positive memory, that is, I bet you remember how much the staff understood you and cared about you. Isn't that right? You felt safe and connected. And that is memorable. It's noteworthy when staff care about your well-being. Yes, we all want to be restored to health. And yes, we often are in hospitals. But we also often are not. But restored or not, there can still be experiences in hospitals that are remarkable. How? Well, when hospital staff and decision makers allow themselves to be guided by one bright star, healing. That's right. Hospitals have a chance to create remarkable experiences every day regardless of bad outcomes, regardless of bad news, and even life or death outcomes. When there are healing interactions, healing information sharing, healing spaces to be in, healing smiles, healing words of encouragement, hidden and yet in plain sight. Yes, I want to give a shout out to the administrative and executive hospital staffs for wanting to protect patients. And part of protecting them is to ensure state-of-the-art equipment, trained physicians and nurses and techs, and safety protocols. But all this said, I want to encourage a harder look and a deeper discussion about healing. Healing is supported by a view that desires that people be restored and empowered, a view that is interested in others' well-being, a view that supports quality interaction that connects people and quality information sharing, even if bad news a view that promotes collaborative decision-making, even if complicated and difficult, and even seemingly routine. Remembering 
the patient's experience. Healing is as much about peace of mind and well-being as it is about medicine and procedures. A healing hospital would keep its eye on providing both. Yes, well-being and quality medicine need each other. A hospital guided by healing policies would be a more unified hospital. I want to encourage a harder look and a deeper discussion at what drives hospital policies. What motivates a standard hospital policy? What is the purpose of each policy? Is it to protect? What or whom do they protect or safeguard or support? Patients? Physicians? Hospital staff? The institution itself? Insurance companies? Pharmaceutical companies? What are your thoughts about this? To me, the primary motivation for any standard hospital policy should be healing. (laughs) That's right, healing. If the primary motivation were healing, if the primary motivation were healing, now we are talking about radical medicine relational medicine. That's right. Cutting edge, relational medicine. And I would bet that hospitals would have patient satisfaction scores off the charts. They would. If hospitals and intensive care units were in the business of healing, doctors and medical staff would have their eyes opened to what is in plain sight. They would see the stress and trauma experience of the patients. And they would see the stress and trauma experience of the staff. And they would change the quality of their interactions and responsiveness. And they would change the way they practice medicine. They would be on the cutting edge of medicine that restored people, not just fixed them or administered to them and then discharged them. And that cutting edge medicine would calm fearful people by connecting with them and interacting with them with human kindness. All these changes could become the new norm in most hospitals. I would encourage hospitals to revisit and look hard at their current mission statements. Do they include the word healing in the first sentence? If healing were the motivation for everything hospitals did, it would be a new North Star for hospitals. And it would far outshine patient safety. Healing includes patient safety and it encompasses so much more. 
When hospital boards of directors and hospital executives and hospital staff leadership engaged in a harder look, they might see that many of the practices in the name of standard medicine might actually be harming patients, really, like the standard use of narcotics and standard use of anesthesia and might actually make an injury, a disease, a condition worse and a recovery much slower. Have you ever thought about that? What we need for life when it causes us trauma are people who understand this and understand the need for healing. Yes, this would require courageous hospital leadership, but it is possible. I can see it. And a North Star of healing would encompass the mental health aspect of healing as well. Think about the difference during the hospital stay regarding the caring, knowledgeable interaction with staff. And consider what a continuum of home support for patients after discharge could look like. Good information, caring interaction, and a desire for long-term well-being has everything to do with healing. Medicine motivated by healing has everything to do with high patient satisfaction. Now, I don't believe any hospital in the world ever intended to make an illness worse or a person more crippled or more dependent on drugs or to put a family in a greater state of confusion or in greater despair. I don't. Indeed, I know hospitals have saved many lives and have cared for people who are sick and injured. I am just encouraging a discussion and exploration of standard hospital policies with an attitude of curiosity about healing. I think it begins with understanding the patient experience. That is the human experience of fearfulness and uncertainty when people enter hospitals. Trauma-informed decision-makers would understand the patient experience and be responsive. <laughs> there is so much trauma that shows up in hospitals and trauma that is created or made worse in hospitals. Those who work in hospitals are to be commended and many are heroes. They are. But because hospitals are filled day in and day out with people in trauma, whether in the emergency room, surgical center, or ICU, my belief is that many hospital staff have likely become numb themselves to their own experience of others' traumas, bombarded as they are with people in bad shape. And yet, not really involved with them 
that breaks my heart. It really does. It's no wonder there is so much alcoholism amongst nurses and so much clinical distancing of nurses and doctors. I'd like to talk about that in a future episode. But these separate cut off from yourself mechanisms are just defense mechanisms. Yes, clinical distancing is just a defense mechanism to protect against pain. And current hospital policies that support clinical distancing and that support silos simply perpetuate these defenses and actually keep staff numbed. That's what I believe. What I'm saying is that many standard hospital policies are not good for hospital staff either. They're not good for anyone, many of them, because numbed and distanced nurses and doctors can't respond relationally to patients and their families. They're not close enough. They really aren't in any sustained kind of way. <laughs> if you're interested in healing and hospital policies that would promote healing, please write me at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. A North Star of Healing would bring about a more unified approach for hospitals, and at the very least, a lively discussion. There is so much that could change in hospitals. We don't have to settle for it's just the way it is, because it isn't. The greatest healing for all of society is trauma healing, regardless of physical healing. And much of that healing could be fostered in hospitals. In closing, let us take in a deep breath and gratitude for all the relational progress that hospitals have made over the years, moving towards healing policies. Think of birthing rooms for families and sleeping sofas in pediatric ICU rooms for parents. Progress. Now, let's breathe out into the world the potential for more relational healing policies and that those in hospitals can see what is possible. Imagine right now, a person working in a hospital. Can you picture her or him? Got it in your mind? Could be someone in hospital leadership at whatever level, or it could be a nurse or a tech on the floors in uniform and scrubs. Maybe it's an administrative staff person behind the scenes. Imagine them in your mind. Feel them in your awareness. And send them your love. And our collective hope that they will see the North Star of healing. They don't have to wait for the new hospital policies. 
and send that prayer with your breath and your heart. So that person whom you can imagine feels it. Send it from your deepest desire in your heart to their heart. And feel that right now with all the others who are sending out the same intention, imagining all the hospital workers and the collective power of our positive intention for all of them who are doing their best. And we send our compassion to them that they will become aware of their own numbness and cutting off and feel our love. Hospital workers need our compassion and we need theirs. Isn't that what God, the source for all that is good, wants for all of us to find, to feel, to act, to be compassionate healers for ourselves, for others. I love that prayer. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Blink of an Eye is supported and sponsored by the DeSatnik Foundation. The DeSatnik Foundation is committed to encouraging spinal cord injury victims in their recovery by providing education, promoting awareness, helping families cope both financially and emotionally, and networking with other spinal cord injury foundations to enhance support. The objectives of the Foundation are accomplished through meetings, seminars, and conferences that support our mission literature and publications that emphasize spinal cord injury awareness, and fundraising efforts designed to raise money for programs and victims, concentrating our efforts primarily on individuals who reside in Atlantic, Cape May, Cumberland, Ocean, and Monmouth counties in New Jersey. The Foundation hosts two fundraising events annually, a midwinter comedy show in Cape May, and the Cape to Cape Paddleboard event. We also partner with Jesse Blauer and the Life Rolls On Foundation to host They Will Surf Again, an adaptive surfing program on the beaches of Wildwood, New Jersey. Donations to our nonprofit can be made via PayPal on desatnikfoundation.org. That's D-E-S-A-T-N-I-C-K foundation.org. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. If you have a story to share, please contact Louise Phipps Semph directly, louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. She would love to hear from you. 